Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market targeted oncology medicines that address unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Gore is joined by Dr. Linda Nikolai for a conversation about the HPV vaccine and its role in reducing the risk of certain cancers. Dr. Nikolai is an associate professor of epidemiology and microbial diseases at the Yale School of Public Health and director of the HPV Impact Project. And Dr. Gore is director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. What's epidemiology? I think a lot of our listeners are really confused by that term. We see it in the newspapers all the time. Sure, sure. It is a big word. Uh, But most simply put, I think the best way to talk about epidemiology is to say that it's really the study of trying to understand who gets sick, why they get sick, and what we can do to prevent it. Okay. And how do we figure that out? I mean, what what is the process about what kinds of things do you study? Well, epidemia, it's a broad discipline. Yeah. It's a very broad discipline, and people approach it from different angles. My approach has, has been really to do population-based science. Okay. So we study people in communities. We study people in healthcare facilities. We, you know, through, our, um, through interviews and conversations and through looking at medical records and things like that, we identify patterns of disease, um, you know, and epidemiology can really be focused on any disease. My interest has been in sexually transmitted infections, and we try to understand why people are at risk and who gets sick. And if we have that information, then we can implement prevention programs to uh, reduce the burden of disease in populations. Hmm. Now, the papillomavirus, uh, that's uh, the warts virus, right? Well, um, HPV, or human papillomavirus, is actually a group of viruses. There are over um, 100 different types of HPV, and they cause different diseases. So some papillomaviruses cause warts on the hands and the feet, like planter warts. Some papillomaviruses cause uh, warts in the genital area, so these are genital warts. And then there are about 15 types of HPV, the ones... Uh, that many of us are really concerned about that are oncogenic and that they can cause cancer. So there are about 15 types of HPV that are sexually transmitted that can cause six different types of cancer. So it's a, a a broad class of viruses. And do the HPVs that cause cancer not also cause warts? That's right. They're different types or, or subtypes. So for I see. Right. So the, the common ones we hear about that cause genital warts, for example, are HPV types 6 and 11. HPV types 16 and 18 are the ones that cause about 70% of cervical cancers. And then there are numerous other types that cause a smaller portion of cervical cancer and also cancers of um, the anus, the vagina, the vulva and um, penile cancers and some head and neck cancers as well. Wow, so I just learned something new uh, because <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Uh, and uh, I, I was always thinking that uh, 
that people who had genital warts, you know, would be worried that they were more at risk for some of these things. But I suppose that if you've gotten genital warts, which are also sexually transmitted, mm-hmm. you might have gotten some other HPV viruses along the way. Is that likely? That That's right. So um, the, wart, the, the HPV types that cause genital warts are transmitted sexually, as are the types that cause um, these anogenital cancers. So again, the HPV that actually caused the genital warts is not likely to cause one of these cancers, but if you've been exposed to one type of HPV, it's possible you've been exposed to the other types that cause cancer as well. And I guess the converse uh, should also be understood that just because you don't have genital warts doesn't mean... you haven't been exposed to a bad HPV and shouldn't be getting your GYN screening, pap smears, and things like that, right? That is exactly right. So HPV, the sexually transmitted human papillomaviruses, are incredibly common. In fact, I describe them as ubiquitous. So up to 80% of people who are sexually active will acquire an HPV infection at some point during their lifetime. So almost everybody gets an HPV infection. The good news is that most of those infections are self-limited. The body's immune response kicks in, clears the infection. People don't have symptoms. There are no consequences. Um, And people often don't even know they've ever been infected. What we worry about is the small percentage of infections that are persistent infections. And these are the ones that can go on and cause these different types of cancers. So that's exactly why um, screening is important, and those guidelines should be adhered to. Hmm. And the vaccination issues, um, that's something that we have to think about, you know, hopefully before people become sexually active. Is that right? Absolutely, before people become sexually active. So in the United States, we've had the the first vaccine was licensed in the United States in 2006. Um, Since then, we've had got two more vaccines. So there's currently three vaccines that are licensed to prevent HPV infection in the U.S. And we've had them now for over a decade. Hmm. The routine recommendation is for all adolescents, boys and girls, to be immunized at ages 11 or 12. And the reason for that age is because the vaccines are only prophylactic and that they only prevent the acquisition of a new infection. If somebody already has an HPV infection, then the vaccine has no therapeutic effect. Hmm. So it is critical um, to receive the vaccine before any likelihood of exposure through sexual behavior. Is there any difference between the three vaccines? Um, Is there a reason why a physician would choose A, B, or C? Right. Well, currently, there's only one vaccine that is available uh, in the U.S. I see. We have um, a vaccine that prevents two types of HPV, type 16 and 18. We call that the bivalent. There's a quadrivalent vaccine that prevents types 16 and 18 that cause, again, 70% of cervical cancers, as well as type 6 and 11 that cause most cases of genital warts. The vaccine, really the only vaccine that's available in the U.S. today, is a nine-valent vaccine. So it provides protection against the two types that cause genital warts and seven 
oncogenic types of HPV. So it's a really great vaccine. Yeah, that's and that's a, the one we should be using today. Yeah, that seems like that's what I would choose if I could get nine instead of two. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, could you explain to our listeners why, uh, why this is important for boys as well as girls? Right. So it's, it's really equally important for boys and girls. So boys um, can get um, several types of cancer caused by HPV. They get anal cancers and penile cancers, as well as uh, some types of head and neck cancers, in addition to genital warts. So those are clearly all outcomes we would like to prevent in boys. There is a little bit of uh, misperception out there, I think, that it's really a vaccine just for girls and it prevents cervical cancer. And that may be due to the fact that when the vaccine was first approved in the U.S., it was really um, marketed for girls as a cervical cancer prevention tool. I think if we could do it all over again, we might have rolled out the vaccine a little bit differently. Because even though we've had the recommendation for boys since 2011, so the first recommendation in 2006 was only for girls. Mm -hmm. And then in 2011, it was uh, boys were included. So we've been able to immunize boys now for six years, but those rates of coverage still lag behind the rates for girls. And I think it's this continuing misperception um, that it's not needed or necessary for boys, but really nothing could be farther from the truth. Hmm. Is there any thought that by, um, I mean, even setting aside uh, cancers for which the boys may be at risk, um, that by immunizing both boys and girls, There'll just be less transmission of the viruses in general so that we will decrease just like polio or measles you know, by immunizing the majority of people. We just bring down the, the rate of transmission. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we call that herd immunity, which is if you achieve a high enough level of coverage in segments of the population, then people who are not immunized are protected, you know, merely from the lower population prevalence. And in fact, you know, Australia is a good example of that, where Australia, they have had a girl-only immunization campaign, but they've seen significant reductions in things like genital warts in boys, because if you drive down the rate of infection in girls, there will just be less transmission in the population. Unfortunately, in the United States, uh, we have not achieved high enough coverage in the girls for there to be that level of population protection. Hmm. So immunizing boys and girls, it, it both provides individual benefit, but if we can get the population coverage higher, then more people will be protected. And I guess we know just from a lot of the vaccination controversy that's in the press that there are many individuals, parents, who really see the whole vaccination question as risks and benefits for their child, understandably. Mm -hmm. And this idea of societal good uh, doesn't necessarily come into play. Right, um, which is also unfortunate. I do think there is a disproportionate amount of concern um, about this vaccine in terms about of... About the HPV vaccine? About HPV vaccine in terms of its safety record. So uh, the safety profile of this vaccine is... Um, it is robust and reassuring. I mean, we know from the clinical trials, the rigorous scientific studies that were done, um, that there are no serious adverse events that are associated with this vaccine. We now have 10 years of what we call post-licensure monitoring. So tens of millions, probably by now, even hundreds of millions of doses of this vaccine have been given, and no 
safety signals have emerged, and there are very uh, robust monitoring programs. So the vaccine is, um, it, it really is a, a safe vaccine. We, it hurts, right? Like any immunization hurts. And one thing, you know, one effect of this vaccine would be um, fainting. So Fainting? Yeah, kids faint. After getting this vaccine, more than other vaccines? No, oh. not more than other gotcha. vaccines. It's like, whoa. But it can happen after any immunization. So the the recommendation is that after receiving this shot, that a, a child sit for 15 minutes before they get up and leave the doctor's office. And that was always very frustrating to me as a parent. Waiting for 15 minutes. Oh my god, <laughs> they had their shot. Let's get out of here. No, let them sit for 15. Just make sure they're okay, um, and then they can go. Uh Um, And again, you know, I think if you think about um, the fact that it hurts and if you think about the fact that uh, fainting is a risk. So those are things people need to know about. But when you think about so, you know, parents do a risk benefit calculation. Those are the risks. The benefit is preventing six types of cancer later in life. Well, so what what is the scuttlebutt on the internet? What are people claiming? Uh, obviously, these are kids who are old enough that that autism, which mm-hmm. is the, kind of the big bugaboo mm-hmm. out there, mm-hmm. shouldn't be a, a big concern. What are people worried about? Right. Well, unfortunately, the autism controversy lingers despite the fact really? that there is no evidence, no scientific evidence of any link between vaccines and autism. Any vaccine, for sure. Right. No, I, I, none. Right. I think so. I, I think the scuttlebutt, as you say, is that people confuse anecdote with science. Okay. So there may be an instance where a child gets a vaccine, and then maybe they—I'll just for, I'll make up an example. Maybe they get a headache. Right. A, a day later. That doesn't mean... Or they got strep throat or something. Or they got strep throat or anything happened, right? These things happen. There is what we call a background rate of strep throat and headaches and other things. So what we have to do is really compare the rate of these outcomes, um, you know, to those who were not immunized. And when you do that, there is no... So just because, you know, B happened after A doesn't mean that A caused B. Got it. So people confuse anecdote with all of the scientific evidence. Gotcha. Well, uh, this is such an important topic, and I'm really looking forward to delving into it more after our Medical Minute. But right now, we're going to take a break for that Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about more information about the HPV vaccine with my guest, Dr. Linda Nikolai. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, committed to providing targeted cancer medicines for patients. When it comes to cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. 
The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to removing multiple cores from the prostate for examination that may not be necessary. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Linda Nikolai, and we've been discussing the human papillomavirus and its vaccination and uh, cancer. Uh, so, Linda, before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, uh, barriers, I guess, to vaccination, and you mentioned that some of it is just... Um, uh, concerns, uh, really unfounded concerns. I seem to remember when the vaccine came out, uh, there was concern about by giving this vaccination, we were promoting uh, promiscuous sexual behavior. That, yeah. So that concern was raised. And again, we have 10 years of data now, a lot of great scientists doing great work looking at that question. And there's not one single study that shows any evidence of increases in sexual behavior because kids have been immunized. So that's just not happening. And there's a lot of data to support that. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't even imagine that kids really pay much attention to what they're getting shots for. M maybe in the adolescence they do a little bit, um, but... Well, it depends at what age they get yeah. the vaccine. So the vaccine is recommended at ages 11 and 12. And it's also recommended at that same visit that childs receive shots against meningitis, the meningococcal vaccine, right. and the Tdap vaccine. So if clinicians you know, at, at an 11-year-old well-child visit, say, okay, there's three shots that you that are you due for today that will prevent meningitis, swooping cough, and cancer. I'm going to give you these three shots. Do you have any questions? I think most parents would say, I don't have any questions. It sounds great. And so there doesn't have to be a whole discussion around the fact that HPV is sexually transmitted. In fact, we don't talk about how meningitis is transmitted. Right. We just talk about the diseases that are prevented. So if the vaccine is presented in sort of this routine and bundled way, you're right. Kids may not even know. And plus, uh, you know, the vaccine, if they do get into that conversation, kids should be remembered that there are a lot of other sexually transmitted infections out there. Right. It's not going to protect against syphilis, for example. No, or HIV or anything like Gonorrhea. that. Gonorrhea. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, right. Anything. Yeah, gotcha. So uh, you participate in something called an HPV impact study. Is that right? That is correct. What is that? What's the impact? So, well, the impact, it's really, really exciting. We have been funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in Atlanta, since 2008 to monitor the impact of HPV vaccines at the population level. So what we do is surveillance, statewide surveillance for high-grade precancerous cervical lesions. So In Connecticut. In Connecticut, the whole state of Connecticut. So we set up a reporting system where when women are diagnosed with a high-grade cervical lesion, this is a precancerous cervical lesion. The yeah, pap smear. Basically, well, right. right. Or not so it would. Well, so if a woman has an abnormal Pap smear, um, which means there is the presence of HPV, she might be followed up with a biopsy, 
where a small sample um, of the cervix is sent to a pathology lab Mm -hmm. and can be diagnosed with um, these precancerous lesions. So cancer, you know, it's a a chronic disease and there's a natural history and there are different stages. So what we're looking at is before women are diagnosed with invasive cancer, we're looking at the precancerous lesions. And what we have seen, it's really dramatic. I think even I'm surprised by what we found that in the 10 years since we've had this vaccine, we've seen reductions in these high-grade cervical lesions of up to 60% in young women. And these are lesions that are clinically very significant. They are associated with a lot of follow-up. Women have to go back for multiple exams and pap smears and biopsies. Um, And, you know, there's the psychological impact of having been diagnosed with a precancerous lesion. So uh, and so we're seeing really dramatic declines, um, which to us is evidence that the vaccine is impactful in doing what we thought it was going to do, which is to prevent cancer. Well, if you've only had this uh, funding since 2008, mm-hmm. how do you have the baseline of, of the high-grade lesions from before the vaccine? Right. So that's a great question. Just like you were saying about the association between getting vaccinated and having a subsequent right. illness. So that's a great question. We feel that we've had the vaccine since the middle of 2006, and our first data on the rate of these lesions is from 2008. Uh, so we feel that what we saw in 2008 was probably even pre-vaccine. though we pre-vaccine impact because these lesions are ones that are typically diagnosed anywhere from two to five years after infection. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you that. How do we know that? I mean, uh, are there natural history studies where they can date the onset of the infection and then follow? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, well, that's very complicated. And and there are natural history studies, but it's very difficult to know when they uh, got infected, I imagine. When someone got infected in relation to the diagnosis of a high-grade lesion. Uh, Very difficult to know, which again, you know, brings me back to the important point, which is immunization really needs to happen before any exposures. Mm. Fascinating. And, uh, you know, of course, I guess there's issues about whether even 11 and 12 is is young enough mm-hmm. in our society, unfortunately. Right. Well, um, that's true. Uh, very unfortunate. The vaccine is actually licensed. It can be given as young as age nine. Hmm. So if there were a reason to be concerned about exposures, it is FDA approved to begin at age nine. Hmm. Uh, for most kids, though, fortunately, 11 to 12 seems fine. should be good enough. Yeah. How has the uptake been in Connecticut? Uh, do you have any sense of that? Yeah, we do know. Um, the uptake in Connecticut has been good. Um, So we know that right now in Connecticut, about 70% of adolescent girls have received at least one dose. Um, It is currently a two-dose regimen. It used to be three doses, and that has changed to two doses. So now uh, boys and girls just need the two doses. Adolescent girls in Connecticut, about 70% have received at least one dose, and about 45% of boys have received at least one dose. Much less. Yes. Fewer. So boys are still trying to are still catching up. So th- those numbers are higher than the national average. Um, so Connecticut, you know, we should applaud that 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 we're doing better than the national average with coverage. But when you think about seventy percent of girls 
receiving at least one dose, that's still 30% of girls who by age 17 have not received any doses and over half of all boys. So I do think while we should applaud our coverage, there is more work to do. It is still not optimal. It is not where it should be. It is not where it could be. And what is the uptake in Australia since you had mentioned that? Australia uh, is over 80%. And they achieved that very quickly. So within a year or two, Australia was up at 80% coverage. And they did that primarily through school-based vaccination programs. So kids in school get immunized in school. In the United States, we do not have school-based immunization programs. Our immunizations are provided almost exclusively in the clinic-based setting. So kids need to go to their doctor, their pediatrician, or their primary care provider. They need to be offered the vaccine, and they need to accept the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So lots of opportunities, the way we do this in the United States, for kids to fall through the cracks. So we, after 10 years, have not achieved the same level of coverage Australia reached within a couple of years. Now, it's really interesting because I'm old enough that I went to school and I got a sugar cube Mm -hmm. with a polio oral Mm -hmm. polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. Everybody did. We all lined up. We Mm -hmm. got the sugar cube. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was, you know, somewhere in the early 1960s, right? Right. So, uh, you know, why why doesn't our society work that way anymore? Well, I think, um, you know, it's complicated and there are a lot of different ways to answer that question. I think one thing I can say is that vaccines, I mean, they're one of the greatest public health successes of this century. And in some ways, they are victims of their own success because Mm -hmm. they've done such a great job of reducing the burden of so many diseases. I think people today don't remember polio. They don't remember diphtheria. They don't remember these diseases. So I think um, that you know, for some people, it just doesn't seem as important anymore because we've lost the salience of the severe outcomes that can happen when people don't get immunized. There was a big public will to get everybody to get rid of polio because it was such a devastating right. disease, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. And I suppose that the the whole body politic, if you will, in terms of sort of um, uh, societal acquiescence if, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. individual choice is, is probably a different discussion than it was still in what was really, if you look back, kind of the post-war period, still, you know, my parents' generation, which was in the, in the World War and seemed to have this whole societal mission to it still, I guess. Right. So At least that's, that's what they tell us. Right, right. So that's one of the challenges <laughs> yeah. that we face. I think, you know, another challenge we face is because we rely so much on um, this clinic-based right. approach to providing immunizations, it really speaks to the important role that healthcare providers have. You know, it's mostly pediatricians. They have who, to remember to do it. They have to remember to do it, and they have to um, think that it's important. And I think, you know, I'm often reminded that, pediatricians and other clinicians who provide care to children and adolescents, they're people too. And they come with their own, uh, you know, to the clinic encounter, to the medical encounter with their own perhaps priorities, uh, perhaps imperfect knowledge. I mean, I've had clinicians in Connecticut say to me, oh, I don't offer it to to my boy patients because there's no benefit. And that's simply not true. Right. So there's some lack of knowledge. I think another challenge that, that pediatricians face is that the outcome that we're preventing with these vaccines are cancers that are 
mostly diagnosed in adults. So pediatricians aren't treating patients with cervical cancer. So it's an outcome that may be less salient to them in the context of providing care to an 11-year-old. Got it. Whereas they think much more seriously, perhaps, about meningitis and whooping cough, because those are diseases that they do see. So I think the fact that these cancers happen 10, 20, 30 years down the road gives, uh, you know, for some clinicians, I think they think about it as not urgent. It's something that, that can wait. And the problem with waiting is that kids may not come back uh, to, the, to that doctor or kids might be exposed. So I think, to me, the real key in increasing coverage with this vaccine is to work with the clinicians to make sure that they have the knowledge they need um, and the awareness they, they need to really recommend this vaccine with a lot more urgency and consistency. Well, let's say a kid hasn't been vaccinated, either a boy or a girl, mm-hmm. and uh, starts his or her adult health care journey. And I think probably most likely this would be uh, in a girl who starts seeing a gynecologist for because she becomes mm-hmm. sexually active or just feels like this is the thing to start doing. And, and um, you know, and let's say the doctor determines that she hasn't been vaccinated. Is there a role for vaccinating young adults? Yeah. Yes, there is. I'm, I'm actually very glad you brought that up. So the routine recommendation is for ages 11 and 12, but there is a recommendation for catch-up vaccination. So girls who have not been immunized at 11 or 12 can be immunized up to age 26. Mm. And boys can be immunized up to age 21. And some boys, um, like, for example, those who are immunocompromised, can be immunized up to age 26. So uh, there is a role for catch-up vaccination, um, but I, I think we're, we're relying on that a little too much. I mean, sure. there aren't too many other vaccines that I can think of that we don't offer strong, you know, at the, on the recommended schedule. Uh, so the catch-up is for kids, for whatever reason, fell through the cracks at 11, 12, but we shouldn't be relying on that as our primary immunization strategy. Do you find that there are particular strata or communities um, that are less likely to be served? I mean, I, mean, I could argue it either way. I, I might think that sort of public health clinics uh, that is, uh, you know, that sponsor, that uh, cater to a, a less uh, economically ad- advantaged group might in some ways uh, be better at this than the kind of frou-frou suburban private doctors. I, that's just my guess. Well, your guess is a good one, and that's exactly right. We do see higher rates of coverage with this vaccine. So that's offering by pediatricians and acceptance among parents in populations that have um, higher poverty and that are more racially and ethnically diverse, so higher proportions of um, of black patients, Hispanic patients, and patients living in poverty, they actually have better coverage. And I think fascinating, it, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind so of backwards of everything else. We, we call it a reverse disparity. Yeah. Um, and in contrast, so more in the suburbs, as you say, those rates tend to be lower. And I think it's more parents, you know, thinking that they know what's best for their child, and doctors being less more reluctant to push it results in that population actually having lower coverage. Dr. Linda Nicolai is an associate professor of epidemiology and microbial diseases at the Yale School of Public Health and director of the HPV Impact Project. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. 
I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.